Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, hello there. Hello. Good morning at you. It's uh, April 18th, 2018. <laughs> We're still here. Sun's actually out. And um, I hope I find my energy. <laughs> I sound awful. Uh, I actually have some. I don't know why I seem so. I, I, I'm just sort of unclear on where to begin here. Uh, I think I'm going to begin with the uh, the Southwest airplane uh, thing. Uh, yow. Yow. I think what I want to say, <laughs> I sound so, is the word trepidatious? I sound so unsure. I'm sure there's a sl- there's probably a two-syllable word I'm looking for, trepidatious, I come up with. Uh, I don't even know if that's a word. However, um, I mean, the terror, I can't imagine. You know, I've flown a lot. And you always, I think even the best flyers, you know, have moments where they think, I know every time I get on a plane, literally step in, I, I like to touch the, (laughs) I like to touch the, the outside of it. Because it's also, it is unreal to me that those big, huge things get up in the air. I mean, when we're taxiing down the uh, the runway, I always think, this can't possibly be fast enough to take off. This can't possibly, and then bah, up you go. It, it's miraculous to me. I vaguely understand uh, why we're able to do it. But it, it seems much more natural to me for something up there to come down <laughs> it just does i'm always blown away so uh this nightmare scenario on the southwest plane from laguardia to uh as it turns out philadelphia um the thing i want to note though is and I don't know if any of you have listened to it. The um, the pilot and air control. Amy, are you able to to find that that the the pilot talking to uh, traffic air traffic control? I have never heard. Well, you do hear it. I mean, like we heard Sullenberger, and you hear. You hear a pilot talking in a situation where they very well may be dead in a matter of seconds. And they are so calm. They're doing what they're trained to do. But it takes a certain kind of a person to do that. And... um, The pilot in this instance uh, was a woman and apparently one of the first women in our military to be uh, certified for uh, to fly combat planes, to fly combat jets. Um, I don't know the terminology exactly. But, of course, uh, she never did because she wasn't allowed to, but she passed all the, you know, she was perfectly capable. But bigotry and assumptions about women uh, prevented her from serving in the way that she had uh, wanted to. Um, do you have it? Let's, if you haven't heard it, let, let's just play some of this because it blows me, it blows me away. Now, but we are single engine. Okay, you are single engine now. Okay. 
uh, I guess it's, uh, can you maintain 111,000? Yes, sir. Okay, so 1380, instead of maintaining 111,000. Okay, down to 111,000. Down to 1380, just so I can understand, you said that you are still single engine, and uh, what else? Okay, Southwest 1380, you're single engine. That's it. Okay, single engine. Maintain 111,000. You need to stand by the Yes, if you would. Have them roll the trucks. It's on the the engine number one, captain's side. Okay, thank you. Southwest Passengers now bracing. something that people think, uh, that women are incapable of certain positions because they are emotional. And, I mean, this is a country that has never elected a, a woman president. Uh, we're in a state that uh, almost never elects uh, women uh, to anything. We... This, you know, I, I, I just don't know um, when the guys that need to get this through their thick skulls, the ones that run things, those would be white guys, will ever wake up to um, how we are failing. Oh, shut up. How we are failing. Jesus, Rodney. So we think of all. Here's what I... I'm sorry, I'm inarticulate today. Think of all the extraordinary people 
who had extraordinary things to offer the world that were never given the opportunity. What we will never know what we have lost by virtue of our stubborn prejudices about anyone who's not white and male. Think what genius might have been just cast aside. What genius might never have even been educated, allowed entry. Imagine that we have spent our history only allowing less than half of the population immediate access to positions of authority and power. We've only allowed less than half of the population to be listened to, to be given a seat at the table, the table they set. I, I sometimes really just get I guess it's anger, and I guess it's sorrow. There's such a sense of loss, of potential unrealized. Who knows if we'd already have had found, you know, the cures for cancer. Maybe it was, it was some black woman somewhere that was the one who had it, who was going to do it. And she never got close because she wasn't given the position, the opportunity wasn't listened to. Imagine that happening over and over and over and over and over again. I look at the world that um, I look at our country and uh, white guys have done some good stuff and they've done some up appalling stuff and that we're still struggling to allow a black man the same the same respect the same opportunity that we're still struggling and often unsuccessfully to allow women and brown people, anybody who's not white <laughs> and male. What kind of a criterion is that? It's as superficial as saying, okay, we're going to run a country here, we're going to run the world, and we're only going to allow uh, people with uh, red hair. or people with blue eyes. It is, it's incredible. So here's this woman, okay, I just, okay. She saved a lot of lives yesterday because of her cool, because of her skill. And she didn't come apart when she landed, no. She walked right back into the cabin, saw, talked to every single passenger, She was deemed unfit to do the very job she was trained to do in the military. Now women, we have been told forever, are too emotional. We know all the you know, what? what is said about black people, why they can't have, you know, black people, women. We have the little stories we tell ourselves. Hmm. 
I'm thinking right now of someone who possesses all the attributes apparently necessary to achieve the greatest positions of power in this world because this person is a he and his skin is pasty white. And so he sits now in what's generally believed to be the most powerful position in the world. No woman, no black person, no brown person would ever, ever have gotten where he is. But because he was a he, and because he had pasty white skin, He is the President of the United States, and he has shown us that he is emotional. The decisions he makes are based on pure emotion, anger, fear, braggadocio, whatever. But somehow we don't start talking about the fact that, oh, you can't have men in positions like this. Look at him. Look at him. But that's what happens to people who aren't in power. That's what happens to black people. One black person screws up somewhere and see? See? That's it. One woman screws up. Some, that's it. See, I told you. One woman cries on the job. Oh, well, it's what we said. They just ain't up to it. I just, I mean, I don't know if you're given to thoughts like that, where sometimes just sitting quietly, you think of what's been lost. Lost by our stupidity and our bigotry. And the loss is, I am sure, so huge that if we were to be able to name it, to show the people that we discounted who could have made us better, all humanity better, that we would be so beset by guilt and sorrow that we could not even function. But I do think about it. And then when somebody so clearly explodes all of these stupid stereotypes that still live as truth in so many people's heads. It's hard not to think then of what we've lost. So... I just needed to say that. Okay, and uh, others are mourning uh, today for one woman. That would be Barbara Bush. I must say her leave-taking uh, was beautifully done. I read somewhere the just a day ago or two days ago she was seen on her front lawn with the, one of her dogs. She was in a wheelchair, but she was outside and and then that she was was it two nights ago um, sipping a bourbon <laughs> uh. That's pretty cool up until the end. Um, I, I want to, um, of all the things that are being said about her and all this kind of stuff, I, I, I just want to say I always appreciated the fact that um, she 
didn't give a damn about the superficial crapola that so many women get burdened by. Dyeing her white hair, which happened to her very young. That's why she was always called grandmotherly. She always looked like her husband's mother for a long, long time. Did she give a damn? Nah. Her face wrinkled. Did she ever have treatments or this? And this? No. And she was beautiful. I think she was a very beautiful woman. And obviously a very strong woman. I might disagree with her about a lot of political things, but that's neither here nor there at this point. I liked her directness, her no-bullshittedness. And there was uh, never any doubt that she was the strength in that family, as is so often the case. The little woman was actually the strength. The fulcrum. Um, the funniest, I, the thing that just sort of is perfect um, is actually something written by uh, the executive editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette today who has a story about being at... Um, Kenny Bunkport, their summer home in Maine, uh, for some kind of a cookout. And he said the president at the time, H.W., her husband, was manning the barbecue. I, unless I missed it, I didn't see anywhere why David Shribman was there, but he was at the time a... Um, uh, he worked for, I think, the Boston Globe, so... Who knows? It might have been something where reporters were invited. And uh, there he was with his <coughs> his wife and and uh, child. So it was fa some kind of a family thing. And he points out, this was 29 years ago, and he points out that um, he handed um, his 17-month-old baby, Elizabeth, to Barbara Bush, so that uh, he could take a picture of his daughter with the First Lady. And uh, he did. He noticed later, though, that um, it had been the last frame on the roll of film in his camera. Now, some of you might not remember rolls of film. <laughs> and sometimes if it was the last one before the role was done, it didn't take. It wasn't going to be a good picture. So he was unhappy about that. And I'll just quote from here on. He said, So we downed our hamburgers, replaced the film in the camera, and about an hour later circled back to Mrs. Bush to take another picture just to be, sh just to be sure we had captured the moment. So my wife extended Elizabeth, their daughter, to Mrs. Bush, who backed away and barked. I already held that baby. <laughs> that was it. She did not. I think that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. I already held that baby. Wow. Um, <laughs> and Shrivman says, uh, we didn't get the picture, but we did get an unforgettable memory. Yeah, that's better than the picture. <laughs> I already held that baby. Wow. Wow. I love it. Okay, I'm just catching up here with uh, some of you. Yes, Barbara, you are reminding me. I know, that's the thing, too. Right. Barbara's saying, you know, 
she gave us George W. Bush. Well, okay, here's what I want to say about that. I'm taking a broader view, as I said. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking about a woman who held a family together, who, um, whose son was limited, but who was elected by the people of the United States, okay? So I don't blame her for that. <laughs> the people of the United States elected George W. Bush. And he is not an evil man. He's limited. That's all. Limited. And I, too, was trying to remember the thing that she had said after Hurricane Katrina that had so flipped me out because it was so noblesse oblige. So, so it was something she had said to the poor huddled masses that were sheltered in the, I think, Houston Astrodome, having lost their homes, who knows, lost loved ones, all of that. And I was trying to remember what it was she had said, and I couldn't, but you've reminded me um, here that what she had said was that these people were underprivileged anyway, and, and their current situation in the Astrodome, quote, is working very well for them. She said that in a in a radio uh, interview. I'll go on. She said, almost everybody I've talked to says, we're going to move to Houston. What I'm hearing, which is sort of scary, is they all want to stay in Texas. Now that's a little, yeah, sort of scary. Everyone is so overwhelmed by the hospitality. And so many of the people in the area here, you know, were underprivileged anyway, so this, this is working very well for them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm. Again, we are now so hyper crazed political. I'm not. She lived a long, what, 92, 93 years, 92 years. And I'm not going to boil down her life to that. I'm not. I'm sorry. Um, I just can't. <laughs> I, you, as you know, I've told you, I'm trying to steer somewhat clear of all the ugliness. It's not helping any of us. And um, I did remember, but I couldn't remember the exact words. And, and, and as I thought about it yesterday, I thought, you know, again, she lived a long life. And I'm not going to reduce her to that. I'm sure she said a ton of things that would drive me nuts. But um, I'll head to Jesus here. Uh, let uh, he who is without sin, is that what he said, cast the first stone? I mean, sorry. When I drop dead, um, people will be able to say some nice things about me, I hope. Um, and there will be people who will have story. Do you remember the time she, and you know, something that I said that was hurtful or stupid or, you know, come on. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Barbara also said on Tuesday, a woman friend age 64 who was retired from the Air Force was told by a man in the parking lot of the VA hospital that parking is for veterans. Well, see that I mean that's it, you know, reality be damned here here's a a jerk, a guy who lives his life in some kind of a cartoon where all soldiers are white guys, and all pilots are men, and all you know, and women are just simply so a woman, 
old woman trying to park in the VA parking lot that's designated for veterans. And he righteously said to her, this parking lot is for veterans. Barbara gives us some history and I thank you for it. Yeah, but this was a white guy. You know, white guys, uh, we know. We're, we're beginning to know how limited they are, okay? I'm going to start, you know, maybe we should just sort of start treating white guys, and they're getting a little taste of it, with the kind of stereotypical bigotry that women have suffered and continue to suffer all of their lives, that black and brown people and yellow people and anyone who doesn't fit the white male thing uh, has to deal with constantly. And so that anything stupid some white guy does, you know, will redound to all of you white guys. You live with it. You carry it. You hold it. White guys don't cringe when some white guy is caught doing something terrible because they know it's not going to then sort of be lumped, whatever that action was that this bad guy took, onto them by virtue of the similarity of their skin color and gender. But let me tell you, women know how that works, black people knows how that works, Jews know how that works, and it's any time you are in any group that is, for whatever reason, bigotry, marginalized, we know all about cringing when one of our cohort does something bad. So, Barbara, thanks for the several hundred women enlisted in the Civil War, for God's sake. Disguised as men. And many of them, yeah, they made it. They, they made it. They only got discovered as men when they got wounded on the field of battle and were in a hospital. In the First World War, women were allowed to join the military. 33,000 of them served. Obviously, again, because of their gender, they were not allowed to do a whole lot of stuff. But they were allowed to be nurses and support personnel. And they were allowed to die. Because in World War II, one more than 400 women died in the line of duty oh i wish your friend had had all of this with her at the parking lot yesterday and then beginning in december of 41 world war 2 350,000 women served in the US Air Force in the US Armed Forces. Of course they served in these segregated outfits just like black people did, segregated. God forbid they should sully the only people who were deemed capable of actually defending the country, which would be again the aforementioned white men. I'm starting to get pissed. Have you noticed that? So there's a strange disconnect between the reality lived by black men in this country and black women and the impact that they have in so many facets of our life but I want to zero in right now on culture. Culture. Because black people pretty much own it. <laughs> they pretty much own whole swaths of American culture. And they own it by virtue of 
their virtuosity. They own it because they are so astonishingly great. And I say this because I failed to say it on, what, yesterday or Monday, that the Pulitzer Prize going to Kendrick Lamar for music is, it's wondrous. And I am fully aware that most white people, especially white people over the age of, what, 30 probably, 35, have never listened to his music. Because hip-hop, <laughs> I mean, hip-hop, are you kidding me? Here's what most white people think about hip-hop. Most white older people think about hip-hop. It's misogynistic, and plenty of it is. It's uh, violent and vulgar and, uh, um, I don't know, and doesn't have a tune. Uh, yeah, well, part of that is, you see, because I, I just want to say this, and I, I'm a little bit of the exception in terms of being an old white lady in that I um, am blessed and privileged to have shared the last uh, quarter century with a, uh, a my son who has always appreciated the best of hip-hop and has sought on occasion to educate me <laughs> about it, has said, listen to this, and um, I have. And you know what? <laughs> Some brilliant, brilliant stuff happening. And if you're looking for who's, what musicians are dealing with the reality of life in the United States today? You know, it used to be maybe rock stars would do some, you know, anthems that became, you know, important because they reflected how we were feeling about what was happening around us. That's what hip-hop's doing now. And for those who think that there's no music in it, I'll tell you what there is in it. Unbelievable lyrical. Lyrics are what make it. Lyrics and the, and the beat and the poetry, much of it very, very intricate, internal rhyming, and at the same time making strong points. I don't pretend that, you know, arguing this will turn many people's heads about it. But the Pulitzer Committee is sure intending to do just that. Because ever since there's been a, uh, a Pulitzer Prize for music, it's been since 1943, uh, it has gone, I mean, overwhelmingly, 99% of the time to oh, classical music. I love classical music. I was raised on classical music. I play, when I play the piano, I play classical music. But classical music, if you're giving an award for music, why would that just be classical music? <laughs> and someone eventually realized that. And so, why they gave out an award, I forget when, but it was relatively recently, to um, a, a jazz uh, musician. Was it uh, Wynton Marcellus, I think? Got the first one that wasn't a classical. Uh, Wynton Marcellus, right? Um, 
there'd been an effort before. In 1965, Duke Ellington was nominated and blown off. Blown off for some classical uh, musician that probably none of us know. Well, we all know Duke Ellington. And Kendrick Lamar is 30 years old. I don't think you find a lot of Pulitzer Prize winners that age. Born and raised in Compton, California. Out of Compton, if you know the the site. And all I know is that if you take the time to seek out, if you don't want to listen to the music, then just seek out the lyrics, okay? The reality is that hip-hop now, it musically, is more culturally important than any other musical form. Hamilton, the musical, probably did a lot to put it into the cultural mainstream, right? And I I don't think it's surprising that you have Hamilton and then you have the Pulitzer going to Kendrick Lamar. And apparently, you know, there's a jury of musical luminaries who decide these awards. And this year, when somebody threw out, hey, I think Kendrick Lamar. And there were people on the panel who didn't have a clue who he even was. Had never listened to any of it. And so the guy who was suggesting him, a guy named David Hajju, said that they were they were looking at more than a hundred different compositions, classical Blah, 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 blah. And as soon as he said, why are we just stuck here in classical? I think Kendrick Lamar. And he said, you know, rap, hip-hop, has value on its own terms. And it's broadly recognized now as serious music, as legitimate. How could it be legitimate? It's a bunch of black people black men and so he played this stuff for some of the people who had never really listened to it a violinist named Regina Carter uh, someone from the Met Opera Paul Cremo uh, and here's what the guy who suggested Lamar said we listened to him and there was zero dissent. So these musically well-educated people listened and said, wow, yeah. Which is why I'm suggesting that some of you who have never done that do the same. Um... In fact, one of the classical musicians who we beat out uh, said, praised the decision and said, Mr. Lamar is one of the greatest living American composers. Kendrick Lamar. That album is every bit as sophisticated, as experimental, as any music that has won the Pulitzer before. Kendrick Lamar, ladies and gentlemen, and the the fact is that if you look at the hot stuff in our culture, it invariably is coming from black Americans. Right? The movie Black Panther. That has become an extraordinary blockbuster has knocked other blockbusters right out right out the door 
on TV. There's so much wondrous black uh, content. The Poet Laureate is a black woman. The National Book Award for Fiction was given to a black woman this year. According to Nielsen, the track stuff in America, hip-hop officially surpassed rock to become America's most popular genre last year. So those of you who are refusing to acknowledge this are being incredibly stubborn, (laughs) I must say, and refusing to learn, grow, challenge yourself. Yeah, there's a lot of bad rap out there. Duh. There's a lot of bad everything out there. Think of all the pop music. Good God, I can't listen to 95% of it. Look at all the bad rock. I can't listen to it. But we know there are gems and brilliance. Well, hip-hop as well. This has been slow in coming, official acknowledgement. And let's, and here's how much the Grammys mean. This same album was up for Grammy Award. Lost. It lost. He's lost every year to the Grammys. You know why? <laughs> well, I'll just talk again about assumptions and privilege, even though the guy who won it was not white, quite. <laughs> Bruno Mars. Okay, do we still have a caller there? Hello, caller. Hey, good morning, Lynn. Hello. You actually stole my thunder a little bit with your uh, when you brought up the, the mention of Black Panther, the film. Yeah. Which has just utterly uh, overtaken a lot of other would-be you know blockbusters and tentpole films from other studios in which completely upended you know every notion that that Hollywood had that you, know, you don't build a major studio release a, a you know a hugely budgeted film around black not people. only a black lead yeah. but around black people entirely set largely in you know admittedly a fictitious African nation and which and which has, has done extraordinary box office overseas as well. Right. Um, and in, in fact, Marvel Studios has had to retool uh, their plans for their for their next release because they have their sort of their you know their shared universe, cinematic universe, to essentially emphasize the 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 elements going to be carried over from that film. Um, because they didn't expect it to be this just absolutely unprecedented success. And you know, I've commented you know, personally to, to family and friends and, and my wife that it's, it's just this fractious, this fracture between you know, our culture and this, and this strain in our, in our politics and our, you know, and the, the regressive sentiments in much of the country, um, and it's almost, uh, you know, it's almost like we have some sort of cognitive dissonance on a massive national scale uh, in our psyche, yeah. where we're going to have, you know, uh, you know, people of color and gay people and women playing massive, you know, really critical roles in, you know, art and fashion and be at the forefront uh, in terms of literature and, you know, even in areas of science, medicine. And yet, you know, we had uh, uh, almost half the nation want this bumptious, oafish, grotesque crook in the White House because he re- promised to return to the days where 
you know, I guess yeah, you had white male Protestants dominating everything right. in the country. Right, right. It, it's just it's. Well, I, you're I right. It's it's a you're it's right. Hard to it, reconcile. Yeah, it is. It is. It's impossible to reconcile because uh, it it shows how how messed up uh, the psyche of this uh, nation and this culture is. I think, uh, you know, America, white America, has always been more than willing to let black folks entertain them. Right? Yeah, but something I also (laughs) noticed, however, is that a lot of Hollywood productions that were critically acclaimed or that were successful in terms of depicting, you know, Cast, you know, with a large black cast, or you know, depicting black life, often were set in the past. I don't know if you you noticed that as well, but it was often as if, yeah, you know, our culture wasn't wasn't comfortable with showing that in the present. Uh-huh. You know, the existence of, of of black people and other minorities in the present. We always had to go back to the civil rights era, or go back to the you know area of Jim Crow or slavery. Um, which I always found troubling. Um, I also have to say, as a fan of the genre, I know you, you're, you're not a genre person. Did, have you seen Black Panther? I, I do have to ask. No, I haven't yet, although I, int- I, I, I was looking for a movie to see just a few days ago. and um, I, I think even though you're not a genre fan, I no, think I would definitely go. And appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no, I will uh, definitely I know, go. I know you're not a genre fan because I, I know yeah. you said you couldn't even quite finished Watchmen, which your son had recommended to you, and you, you kept getting lost in Dave Gibbons' incredible artwork. That's true. Um, I still do, and I, I know it's brilliant. I can see it's brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, art, the yeah. artwork is easy to get lost in, especially, yeah. but uh, that's digressing, but what's, what, what gets me about Black Panther is that there were there's part of fandom that was complaining, you know, that, well, how could... How can you say this movie is diverse? There, there, you know, there are only you know two white people in it, and one of them is a villain. And I'm like, okay, let's look at every other film Marvel has released. Marvel Studios has released every other film. Are any of them built around you know a, 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 a hero who's not white and male? No. <laughs> you know, are there any? black characters or characters of any other race that aren't either sidekicks or supporting characters? No. Right. Is there any film they've released that has, you know, anyone but white people in the majority? No. I mean, the closest thing you had to a major, you know, African-American character would have been Samuel Jackson's character who, who appears throughout the, the film as a linking device. I, I mean, I don't understand how... Sometimes people just tone deafness. It's hard for me to understand, and I I can get that we all have sort of these these uh, we do have some like biases hardwired into us. We yeah. really do. I mean, I remember encountering someone whose name I spoke with him on the phone, and he had this stereotypically Irish name, and when he showed up, he was a you know he was Asian American, <laughs> and I'm like. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, yeah. Oh, sure. We all. Yeah. Surprise to my chagrin. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, I thank you, John, and uh, make me okay. I'll pick Watchmen up again. I got it. I got <laughs> well, it. See Black Panther. It's, Black I will. Just beautiful to look yeah, at. Yeah. I will definitely and the go. The performances are outstanding. Definitely go. I am making. Although it's on my list. Bassett, uh, I I don't know. She has the fountain of youth. I. You know, I think she's going to look the same when she's 100 years old. Well, some people have it. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, also want to note the passing of Carl Castle. Um, for those of you who are fans of NPR's uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, um, he he was, uh, for most of the show, uh, the, I don't even know what you call it, <laughs> the sidekick uh well the new york times calls him the absurdist comedian um and he was also i mean his main job was he was a the anchor guy 
or All Things Considered and Morning Edition, you know. And then when it turns out he was asked to do this thing on Saturdays um, where he could let loose the inner comedian and character inside, I mean, people fell in love with him. Carl Castle, a wonderful character. And by all accounts, I mean, everything I'm reading about him is just like a fine, fine human being. Uh, Everybody, everybody loved him. And, you know, I mean, when somebody dies, everybody says good things. But it's so clear that this guy was uh, just, just loved. And, you know, one of the big things that people would win on the quiz show, wait, wait, is uh, you could win Carl's voice. He'd record the voice for your answering machine at home. And um, this obit has some of the ones that he recorded for people, um, such as, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me till you hear the beep. Imagine a professional of my caliber making voicemail messages as a game show prize. You ever heard of a big shot like Bob Edwards asking to stoop so low? Oh, well, I guess it's not such a bad gig, all things considered. You still there? Uh, oh, have a nice day. And then another, you've reached the voicemail of Amy, Michael, and Helen. And yes, all you NPR listeners, this is Carl Castle. Now, surely you're not calling just to hear the dulcet tones of my voice. But if you are, get a life. Otherwise, leave a message for the Salvatories. Um, people, you know, wanted those anyway, so he's he's gone. There was a little note in um, in the obit that that tickled me. Uh, he attended the University of North Carolina uh, and uh, majored in English. And uh, there was another student there who he teamed up with, and they started, uh, helped start the campus radio station, Um, and that was in the 50s, early 50s, and that other student was the also much beloved Charles Kuralt. When I was a uh, a reporter, my first reporting job in Madison, Wisconsin for a television station there, um, I once came into that little newsroom and found Charles Kuralt sitting at my desk using my typewriter. I, I mean, I remember just being so blown away, blown away that he was using my typewriter. And remember when he died? That it, it uh, Kuralt, it was discovered that he had an entire other family. He, I'm trying to remember it exactly, but it was found out that he had, I think, I make him a bigamist, that he had two families, two separate families. If I'm remembering that wrong, uh, I'll apologize tomorrow. <laughs> but... <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, that was that was mind-blowing. Um, I also want to just note that uh, uh, Pennsylvania Congressman uh, Charlie Dent, Allentown, uh, Republican, considered a sane Republican by most, who had said uh, some time ago that he wasn't going to run again before the deluge began. And now that the deluge of people, Republicans, who say, I'm not going to run again, has, um, has come upon us, he's now up the ante because yesterday he announced that rather than wait to, he, doesn't, he said, I'm not even going to, he's not going to even fill out the remainder of this term, which, you know, someone's going to be elected, uh, the election that he says he's not going to stand in is no- November, which ain't that far away, and um, he's decided he's getting out now. He's leaving. He can't take, he's just, I'm not waiting. I'm out. I'm out. And, uh, I mean, I think it shows a level of of just disgust and wanting to escape. Um, 
and it means that there will uh, there'll have to be another special election in a congressional district here. They're going to have to have an election for somebody to hold that seat for not even a year, sort of like what happened with Connor Lamb here in the 17th. And so um, since the lines have been redrawn, it'll be much like that. Someone's going to have to run for Charlie Dent's seat, and even if they win it, they won't be in the district that they'll be running for if they want to try to be re-elected because that district has has changed uh, totally in configuration. But the special election will be in the old gerrymandered uh, district. So that's happening. And maybe he's just trying to get out ahead of the mob and, you know, land a lobbyist role because, uh, you know, how many former, going to have 500,000 uh, former Republican congressmen all trying to get the same jobs, right? Still feeding at the trough in large part. Okay, that's it, guys. Um, I thank you for uh, being here. And uh, I wish you a, a warm spring. <laughs> It'll be gone before we ever, anyway, never mind. Uh, mumble, mumble, mumble. Uh, bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.